Hello, and welcome back to the Allegheny CareerCast. In this episode, I sit down with James Bach. James is a software tester, author, trainer, and consultant. I thoroughly enjoyed sitting down with James to talk about software testing and what it means to work in this career field. I hope you enjoy the episode, and don't forget the video version is available on YouTube. I actually... I actually read something earlier today on uh, somebody posted on LinkedIn about automation and I was like, what a wonderful topic and timing. Cause I'm talking with James later today. It's uh, I think the the question was, is automation going to be necessary in 2023 or something? And then I was like, somebody probably asked automation that going to be necessary in 2023. My question, I was like, somebody probably asked that question every year for the past however <laughs> many years. Right. So here we go. <laughs> what are your thoughts on automation? I mean, I know your thoughts. I just would like you to share your thoughts on automation because being in software testing myself, automation it's for testers. Yeah. Everybody, everybody, all companies want it. Developers, testers. I mean, there's testers in the space that yeah. say that automation is the new, like that's all you need. And we're, I align with you. I don't believe that at all. So, they, well, they were saying that in 1995. So, that's the thing about you know being an old guy in this industry is you're able to look back and understand the hype cycles, and 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 automation is just one big bunch of hype uh, by uh, people who really like. Uh, to avoid humans and human responsibility. Uh, that's not to say that automation isn't a a very important tool. It's a very important tool. I am a programmer, and I write uh, programs to do lots of different things. I don't use the term test automation anymore. I did for many years. I've come to believe that it is a toxic term that hurts people. It makes people think that testing is an algorithm and that humans doing testing are as absurd as humans trying to add numbers together faster than a computer can add numbers together. Why would you even try to compete? It's like having a, you know, Usain Bolt try to race a fighter jet. You know, he's not going to win. Why does he even try? Why does he think he can race a fighter jet? And and some people are thinking that way when they think about automation used in testing. They just have have the automation use your product instead of uh, a human. Except, of course, humans are not doing the same thing that automation does. This is the key thing. It's, there's no such thing as test automation because the automation isn't doing testing. The automation is checking output. At best, it is checking output. It might not even be checking output. There's lots of other ways we can use tools to help us test that have nothing to do with checking output. We can write tools that give us test ideas. We can write tools that that help us understand test coverage, tools that help us schedule testing, tools that help us configure our tools to configure our environments, tools that help us track the 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 completeness of our testing or analyzing log files. I use tools in so many different ways. So right now I I have a client and I'm writing automation for them. I'm not going to call it test automation. It's automation used to help testing. So we just call it automation. We, we call it tools, test tooling. And this particular automation does a variety of things. One of the things it does is it uses Selenium to interact with the product in simple ways so that we can go through a bunch of sanity checks and see that the product doesn't do something really crazy and weird or doesn't completely break down 
And that kind of checking is quite useful. And not only quite useful, but I think essential in the modern world. And as testers, I make use of that. So my testing is how I use this tool to accomplish the mission of testing. That means that I need to understand the limitations of this tool. It's very important for testers to understand what their tools can do and what their tools cannot do, what the limitations of their tools are. That's why I say only humans can test, because only humans can be responsible for the limitations of their testing. The tool cannot be responsible for that. The tool just does what the tool does. This is particularly important this week, this month, because of chat GPT and OpenAI. I've been working with, with this stuff, trying to, to see what it can do. I I just did a talk earlier today called Chat GPT is Junk, because <laughs> it's junk. Uh, I tried get I try asking it factual questions. It's gets some things right, but arbitrarily gets things wrong. If I don't already know the right answer, I wouldn't know I was being lied to. I ask it math or logic questions. It gets some things right. And in other cases, it it will arbitrarily suspend a rule that I've given it. It'll break rules. It'll it'll say things are true that are not true. Uh, it it's so frustrating because you have to keep asking it the same question in different ways. You have to carefully look at its answers because in any given moment, it could just arbitrarily not give you the right answer. Uh, and it's very comp confident when it gives you its answers so that you you have no clue how good the answer really is. You don't get any clues from it. It's not like it says, well, I don't know. I'm not sure, but here's, here's some ideas. It, it never says that. It always says, this is the answer. And then if you dispute the answer... It will sometimes argue with you, but it argues with you kind of like a smirking teenager might argue with you. It's not a productive kind of learning engagement between you and ChatGPT. So I concluded that I can't think of anything I would trust it to do. And not only that, but the people who created it, they're not taking any responsibility either. They're just like, oh, it, it, it can do cool party tricks. So maybe it's useful. We'll just throw it out there. This tool is going to be used to fool people. It's going to be used to do bad work all over the, the world. It should never have been released. Uh, now, Testers are nonetheless going to ask it to create test cases. And it does sometimes create plausible-looking test cases. And people will go, see, if these are plausible-looking test cases, they must be good. We might as well trust them. It is, after all, a vastly advanced AI. And to me, that's just like taking the most entry-level tester, giving them a template, and then trusting whatever they do. It's a bad idea. It doesn't work. It won't work. It's going to lead to bad testing. But ChatGPT won't tell you. Uh, oh, actually, if you ask it directly, it will say that it's not qualified to do software testing. <laughs> it says that. I, I I said I asked it this question. I said, uh, you know, can, you know, can I rely on your on your uh, your answers. And it said, uh, yeah, I will try my best to give the right answer. And then I said, but will I regret relying on your answer? And it said, well, you should always check the quality of any information you get from any anywhere. I mean, like, don't trust anybody. All right. And then I said, well, can I uh, use your answers to do life-critical work in engineering? And it said, whoa, no, I don't know anything about engineering. Wait, you just told me your answers 
All right, reliable. Now you're saying, as soon as they mention engineering, you're saying, oh, but not for engineering. So then I asked it, well, can I use you to solve software engineering and test engineering problems? And it said, I don't know anything about that. But then if I ask it for test cases, it's like, here's test cases. Here's a bunch of test cases. Give me test cases for a field. Oh, here you go. Uh, and, you know, they look plausible. But you, the problem is, the problem is, you don't know what you just got. And chat GPT, it doesn't know what it's given you. Like if you say, tell me why you gave me those particular cases. It's not going to break each one down and, and tell you exactly what is the purpose and value of each one of those. It can't critique its own work. It can produce things that look like critiques, but if you look closely at them, you'll see that it, it contradicts itself, it breaks logical rules. It, in other words, it, it creates answers that look plausible, but they do not have, they do not come from a place of really understanding the problem that you asked it. That's the conclusion I came to after several hours of of working with it. So, yeah, I've seen know, I've seen both sides. Maybe, but, I've seen both yeah. sides. So there's like the whole um, influencer piece where it's the greatest thing ever. Here, let me hey write this piece of code, and it's relatively basic. And of course, it can do like the simplest things. Uh, so that they take that, and you know, obviously they're propping it up as the next best thing. But then there's other people that I follow um, professionally, you know, people that are educational and they basically did what you did. Hey, write me, you know, they gave it an actual problem and it was completely wrong. So, and then the, you know, the guy right. that I was I tried following. That too. <laughs> I tried to get it to write a JQ command line to, to solve a certain problem. What it wrote was a command line to solve a simpler problem that I didn't ask it to solve, but was a kind of a subset of the actual problem that I asked it to do. So, but then, then I said, well, that doesn't, that doesn't work because of this. It, it just gives me the same answer again, or it tells me that I specified the question wrong, or it just, it just gets whiny. <laughs> what they, uh, uh, complain about the answer where do you see so my kind of thought process is people are going to start using this for their work and it's not going to work and to your point we're getting to the point where it's not people are saying i'm not responsible for that i put it in chat gpt what do you want like it's smarter than i am where do you kind of see this as far as like ethics and the culture of software engineering software testing I feel like people don't want to actually do the work of testing. That's why uh, that's why automation is so popular. They don't believe well, it's... Human responsibility is very, very important. And hopefully the rise of AI will shine a bright light on what it means uh, to be responsible. Maybe it will usher in a new awareness of ethics uh, that that hasn't uh, existed before. And maybe that will be a, a good thing. Maybe the rise of AI, like the rise of social media, will cause us to realize, you know, we have to be really careful about human responsibility. We have to be careful about work. We can't just say, if work looks superficially good, then it is good. Uh, we need to understand who is answerable for the work that's happening? Who answers for it? We can't just say, I don't know, I just found it somewhere. You know, some AI just told me about this, and so I, I, I'm using it. What do you think, um, real testing versus fake testing? I think this is a good topic because a lot of people, you know, what is fake testing? What yeah, is real fake testing? It's bigger than real testing. Right. Can you talk about the differences? Because, you know, yeah. Fake testing is a huge industry. 
and real testing is a comparatively small industry. Uh, so what am I talking about when I say fake testing? Uh, fake software testing is best understood with a little story. So I'll, I'll just tell a story. Imagine you have an executive at a software company. And they're creating a product. Their, their company is creating a product. And this executive doesn't want to spend any money on testers because they don't create anything, testers. They just complain all the time. So we'll just not have the product be tested. We'll tell the developers, do it right the first time. Developers will say, of course, we don't intentionally make mistakes. What will happen if you ship that software is people will experience a lot of problems in it and they'll be unhappy and they'll find out that you didn't even test it. And they'll say, executive... You didn't even try to test this. That is totally irresponsible. And the executive will then say, ah, okay. So the next thing they do, they hire a bunch of real testers. And then they have a problem because real testers keep finding problems. And when they find problems, that just makes it longer to ship the product. And so the real testers are very annoying to deal with, constantly raising issues and questions that you wish nobody would raise. Uh, it just slows us down. So then you go, aha, how about this? What if I hired fake testers? What if I hired people who looked like they were doing testing, but I would make sure that they weren't actually doing real testing? Here's what would happen. We would ship something to the field. It would have problems. And people would say, their product has problems. And I would say, if I'm the executive, well, I hired testers. You know, what, what else can I do? Those bad testers, I'll fire those testers and I'll get different testers. And then everybody collapse. Yes, you need better testers. And then I just hire more fake testers. This is the business model of companies like Cognizant, which in India, they have tens of thousands of testers. Their business model isn't test as efficiently as possible and find as many bugs as possible. Their business model is please the client by producing plausible looking documentation. I mean, sometimes they find problems, but... If they miss problems, their customers are not very concerned because the reason why they were hired is not because that their customers want the best testing in the world. <laughs> They're hired so that we can say we hired testers and we want the cheapest possible testers we can get. What's something that uh, people can look at? Like, let's say I'm... I was hired as a tester and I'm in a company and we're, you know, building a product or whatever. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, I think I might be a fake tester because they want me to do what? What would you put in that statement? Because they want me to create documentation instead of looking at the product and trying to find problems in it. Because they want to slow me down when I'm reporting problems. They will say, well, you have to fill out this JIRA ticket and you got to fill out this other JIRA ticket. And sometimes they have a whole bunch of fields in the, in the, the, the bug uh, tracking system and the system you fill out all the fields. This slows you down. But they want you to do all that because if you don't do it, then they have a reason not to fix the problem. Well, you should have reported it. It's not my fault. In other words, a lot of engineering actually is caught up with blame shifting, just blame engineering. It, it's not that we have to produce a really good product. It's that we need people not to yell at us about it. You know, so for instance, this is a great example. Microsoft, Google, Facebook, they have vulnerabilities upon vulnerabilities. They get hacked. And what do they do? They shrug and go like, oh, well, you know, engineering's hard. 
Uh, you can't stop. You can't stop security problems. There's nothing that can be done. Yeah, there's something that can be done. You cannot ship products. You don't have to ship those products. Well, then we wouldn't be able to make all our money. Are you crazy? You know, it's like saying, uh, well, we're going to give you the food. It might be poisonous. It might be full of bacteria. But if we didn't give you the food, we would go out of business. So, of course, we're going to give you the food. We just can't promise it's safe. <laughs> and uh, and people just imagine if the public just accepted that. And the public did accept it in 1900, in 1890. The public did accept that food isn't necessarily safe. It's your fault that you ate it. But then, you know, society evolved. And uh, now there is an expectation that the government is supposed to go after food companies that are poisoning people. But even that is an incomplete uh, process. We could do a lot better. There's, there's, vitamin companies that are producing things that are hurting people and the government can't keep up with it. Uh, and and the vitamin companies are like, well, you know, we got to make money. So until someone stops us, we're just going to keep doing this. And they lobby to make sure that the laws aren't changed and tightened up so that they can they can sell anything they want in a vitamin bottle. And, and it's your problem if you get sick. It's really hard to tell if you are sick. That's the other thing. So similarly with testing software, you are using software. I use Gmail. I think Gmail is usable, but it's not great. There's a lot of problems with it. Why don't I use something else? Because there's a lot of problems with everything else too. And, I, and it's so hard to move from Gmail to something else that... I'm, I might as well stay with, with Gmail. After what was testing like? Because you started in the '90s, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. What, what? Started um, in the 80s. Eight, okay, even better. 1983. What, I'm almost uh, 40 years in the industry. Between January now, 1st, 1983, was my first day of work as a video game programmer. Between then and now, what I guess, because you help um, young testers, new testers, whatever. Uh, I'm assuming you mentor a few people. Yeah. What are what are some uh, big differences you're seeing? I guess with people that are trying to get into the field or stay in the field, because I also think testing. Some people get into it with the thought that this is I'm going to do this for a little bit and then I'm going to go do something else. You know. Oh, I think that's always been that way. Uh, people thought that way in the 80s, and they think that way now. And I think that's very reasonable. I, it used to really annoy us at, at, at Apple and the big SQA group I was in in 1987. We were, we were annoyed when people came in and said uh, and, and implied that, well, I want to get this job, but then I want to move on to something else. I, we shouldn't have been annoyed. I think it's a very reasonable idea. Uh, it's okay. If, as long as people put in the work and 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 learn and do a good job, it, it's totally okay to move on to something else. And the reason why I feel that way now is because I've de dedicated my career to this and I don't want people in the testing field who aren't interested. Like, right. Go away. Definitely stay a short time in the testing field if you're really not into it. I want people to stay in the testing field because they're they're dedicated, they're fascinated, they're they want to be good testing craftsmen. That's that's why I want them to be around. So I don't want to like urge them to move on if testing's not for them. And so I try to make it hard on 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 people. If, if I'm going to mentor them, if I'm going to 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 coach them, then I want to coach them up to a high standard. And if they're not interested in that high standard, I hope they they move on and do something else. 
Is there something that sticks out, uh, I guess, when you're mentoring individuals, things that, is it attention to detail or, I mean, we've talked about ethics and culture already. Like what is one of those things where you're like, you know, you're for a young tester for somebody new. Yeah. What do you see? Right. Okay. Uh, I, what I'm looking for is talent and talent can come in different forms, but one kind of talent is metacognition. So metacognition means that not only do you think, but you think about how you think. Not only do you give me an answer to a question, but you also give me information about how did you think through the question. And even people with no experience might exhibit metacognitive talent. And, and when I see that, I get very excited because I could turn that person into a philosopher, into an engineer, into uh, a heavy-duty thinker. That's I want someone who is self-critical, but also confident. And that's an interesting combination. It's like confident humility or humble confidence. You want both those things working together they kind of balance each other that there's a nice tension between humility and, 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 and confidence. And this is what I wish the AI would exhibit is a little bit of humility about its answers, a little self-checking uh, rather than forcing me to do all the, the, the self-checking. And, you know, you could design an open AI, you could design a chat bot, which before it gave you an answer would ask itself certain testing questions. <laughs> Is this really a good answer? <laughs> and it could but do that behind the scenes before it comes out with an answer. I, I'd love to see that. So uh, metacognitive talent is one thing. Another thing that I, I get excited by is curiosity. And we have to define curiosity since people don't usually have a definition. You have an intuitive understanding of what curiosity is, but when I ask people to define it, they rarely can do it. So I'll define it. Curiosity is the urge to learn something that you don't need to know. If you need to know it, it's not curiosity. It's just learning. I need to know where my car keys are so that I can get in my car. No one's going to say, he's such a curious man, always looking for his car keys, always wondering where they got to. So curious an intellect he is. That's not curiosity. I need my car keys. Curiosity is something like, I wonder if, I wonder what it's like to memorize digits of pi. I'll try to memorize as many digits of pi as I can. So I did that once and I memorized 1132 digits of pi, which I could recite correctly. That took me two weeks of obsessive memorization. And uh, I learned something about memorization. I learned something about the impact it has on my brain. I, 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 saw some dark things about memorization. It, it it actually gave me a headache, a physical headache at various times. It gave me some really kind of bad feelings. Uh, and that's why I stopped at 1132 digits instead of going further. It was getting it was getting weird and painful uh, for me to proceed in the method that I had been using anyway. Uh, but I, I did that out of curiosity mostly. I was wondering what would happen. How would it feel? I now know how it feels. How it feels to recite 1,132 digits of a number correctly. How it feels is like you're walking through a forest with your eyes closed in the middle of the night and you don't hit any trees because you know exactly when to step to the right and step to the left. And you kind of feel the trees go by you, but you never run into a branch or a tree or anything. That's how it felt to me. Like I, 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 I'm in a forest at night 
and I I have this path, uh, and if I take a wrong turn, I'm going to smack into a tree. But I but I avoid all the trees. It's it's kind of a weird feeling when you're when you're doing that kind of of of, of reciting. So I learned about that. I have no reason to do that. A curious person learns things, uh, various things, for no reason, and then often finds later on that that knowledge actually does have a use. We need testers to be at least somewhat curious, at least somewhat to have an urge to learn things without a justification for learning them, because often you're looking for bugs and you don't know what kind of bug you're going to find. You don't have any expectation for what kind of bug it could be. So you can't look for it on purpose. You can only look for it kind of accidentally. And if you're curious, if you're curious, you're more you're more uh, willing to open doors and see what's behind them as a tester. So curiosity and metacognitive ability are two things that with no experience whatsoever, you could be you can be a child and you can have those those uh, those qualities. Um, I get excited when I when I see those things. Uh, Finally, I have one more thing. What is your attitude about confusion? If your attitude about confusion is that confusion is intolerable, then I think you'll struggle as a tester because we spend a lot of our time as testers confused and we can't be blaming ourselves for that. We can't be feeling like there's something wrong with me because I'm confused. We gotta relax. We gotta roll with that. Years ago, I flew paragliders. I would jump off high hills and mountains and fly paragliders. I did that for a short time just to prove I could do it, just to have the experience. But it, it got too expensive and too time-consuming to keep up with it, so I, I stopped doing it. But one time I jumped off a mountain and right into a cloud, and you're not supposed to do that. But I was tired of waiting for the cloud to disappear, so I just said, I know the area, I'm just going to fly right into this cloud. So I flew into the cloud, and I immediately realized why people say, don't do that, because you can't tell where you are, you can't tell that you're moving, you can't tell if you're turning. You have no points of reference. It's just a whiteout. So that's a problem because I was flying toward the ocean. And it, I didn't want to land in the ocean. So I need to see the ground underneath me. I was pretty sure that I'd have enough time to turn around if I got over the ocean. But I wasn't absolutely sure. So I had to just sit there and not react. I mean... To not try to turn, not try to do anything. I just want to like go straight, keep everything stable, and then I'm going to come out the bottom of this cloud and I will have time to turn around if I'm over the ocean and come back into the land, I think. <laughs> so that worked out. And it turned out I had a couple of hundred, several hundred feet uh, to work with. So, uh, so I, I, I think I was over the beach when I came out and I turned around and no problem at all. But it occurred to me that that experience of being in the cloud is like the experience of being confused as a professional technical person. You you have to you have to not overreact to it. You have to to keep stable. You need to cling to what you do know and what you can do. And you need to trust that the clouds are going to break and, and, and this will not always be confusing. So people who have that attitude about confusion, that they can tolerate it, they make better testers because they're less obsessed about getting to a conclusion. I need to know if the test passed or failed. It's okay not to know if the test passed or failed. It's okay to wonder what might really be going on under the surface. Don't be in too much of a rush to just get it over with. Explore. 
and you'll find more problems that way and better problems. So you see how I'm talking uh, attitude about metacognition, watching yourself think, confusion, curiosity. Now notice none of this stuff is about learning selenium. <laughs> What's the relationship um, in your experience with developers? How do, how should testers go about kind of building that relationship? Because I've been in some, on some teams where it's kind of, not, I don't want to say volatile, but it's, I'm the developer, you're the tester, do what I say type of attitude. And then I've been on teams where it's like super collaborative, which I prefer. So what are your, what are your kind of thoughts on that relationship? Well, the uh, testing is a highly social activity. It's not an algorithmic activity. It's a social activity. And so all projects are just about people. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it's just about how people get along. And, and so... In, in order to have to live the technical life, it, you need to learn how to relate to your fellow humans. And that is hard. It's hard to do. And there's lots of different kinds of people in the world. And so and we all see the world from our own center. Uh, for instance, I like to say every meeting I go into is a meeting with a difficult person in it. I don't have easy meetings. Why? Because I'm in it and I'm a difficult person. I'm not easy to get along with. I'm not easy to argue with. So I carry that with me wherever I go. <laughs> and there are people who say, well, that's right, James. That's why we don't want you on our project. Like, okay, you know, good luck with that. Trying to keep all difficult people off your project forever. Um, I think that it might be better if you learn how to deal with difficult people over time. Uh, and so I, I mean, Apple computer put me through classes. I'm a high school dropout. I was very young when I came to Apple Computer, but they made me a manager anyway. It was a bad idea, but they did it. And I embraced management for a while. And they sent me to all these classes on listening skills and persuasion, you know, influencing skills and how to write, all kinds of things that, how to write performance reviews, how to interview people. Apple had a whole bunch of classes. It was called Apple University. And so I took all these classes at Apple University and um, practiced and tried to, to learn how to do the things that they, they wanted me to do. And those classes were really helpful. Almost every one of the classes was helpful. And a few of the classes were fantastic, transcendently helpful, amazingly helpful. I... I'm so glad I had the opportunity to take uh, like the first listening skills class I took, which I thought would be a waste of time when I got there. And it was the opposite of a waste of time. It was so helpful for me. And it was helpful because I immediately challenged the teacher. I immediately, I got, I was the first one there and I was one-on-one -on -one with the teacher. And I said, I thought this was a useless class. I told her that right at the beginning. It's a useless class. Like, who needs to learn how to listen? We all know how to listen, lady. So I'm, I'm basically 21 years old telling her this. And she did the most amazing Aikido judo move on me that was just brilliant. And it convinced me forever after how important listening skills are because she walked toward me instead of cringing in the corner and feeling insulted. She rocked, she walked toward me to meet her aggressor <laughs> and she listened to me. She said, so you're concerned this is gonna be a waste of your time? And I said, yeah. And she said, that's a reasonable concern. Um, and I said, I know. 
And and then she said, well, maybe I can put your mind to ease on that. And I realized as she was answering me that I felt good. I felt listened to. I felt acknowledged and respected. And her answer in the 35 seconds or whatever that her answer took to give me, it achieved an amazing thing. I went from being unwilling to be there, only grudgingly willing to be there because I was being paid, to being an enthusiastic student in her class because she instantly demonstrated the value of what she was going to present to me. And she told me, she said, let me put your mind at ease. I'm not here to tell you what to do and how to do it. Uh, you were right. You probably already know uh, lots about how to listen. What we're going to do here is I'm going to introduce you to some things you might not have heard about. Maybe you have. I'm going to give you a chance to practice some things that you might not have a chance to practice in your regular work life, but you can practice them more safely in this environment. And it's all up to you. She said, these are arrows in your quiver. You can choose not to use them. You could choose when to use them. You are in control. It was the perfect thing to say to me. The perfect thing to say to me. And uh, so what I got from that is, actually, I can stand to learn a lot about listening. And this woman is showing me that she is like a super Jedi master in listening. I want to be a super Jedi master in listening. And that turns out to be so important in engineering. It's hard to consistently use these skills because you have to want to and you have to master your emotions. But it goes to your question because projects are really just all about people. And if you learn about people, about personalities. If you learn that sometimes when people snap at you, in fact, almost all the times that people snap at you, it's not about you. That's a really, really crucial lesson. If people would learn this more on social media, it would be so, it would make, it would bring world peace. When somebody disrespects you and treats you badly most of the time that's it might have a little to do with you but mostly it's about their own state of mind because of something terrible that's happened to them in the past something bad that's happening at their home and if you can learn to have that perspective Especially whenever anyone, you say something in a meeting or, and somebody comes out with something that is out of left field, like they misinterpret in the most horrible way the thing that you said and blame you. And you go, I, I can't believe you would, you would imply that I would be attacking. I'm not attacking you. How dare you? If in that moment, of like disbelief at what the heck is this guy's problem? You you can get yourself to go, wait a minute, wait a minute. Of course it doesn't make sense because it's not about me. Something has happened today. Maybe this guy had a fight with his girlfriend, his wife, his child. Maybe he's worried about his child. His child's drinking. He can't stop them. That's He's obsessed with that. One of the stories I like to tell in class is uh, there's one of two times that I almost fainted from embarrassment at work. Almost fainted. I swooned from embarrassment twice in my professional life. They both are now comical, funny stories that I tell people. But at the time, it was deadly serious. One of the times was when I accidentally replied all to review feedback, a question for review feedback to 120 people. I, I accidentally replied to 120 people what I thought of a senior manager at Borland International. And I just, I didn't like the guy. I thought he was incompetent, so I said so, which is totally reasonable. 
I was asked for my feedback. I gave my feedback. But it went to him and to all his friends. <laughs> and he, I was a manager, but he was a senior manager. And I was working on a project. So that was one of the worst days of my life, uh, my work life ever, was dealing with that fallout from that. But here's the thing. The guy would show up to meetings unprepared. He was lackadaisical. He was lazy. And that's not, that's not good enough. Okay? That's not acceptable. Right. So later that day, the vice president comes to my office and says, Oh, James, uh, maybe you don't know, but uh, that, you know, the guy that you gave me feedback about, his wife is dying. She's, she has terminal hepatitis. She, that's why he's not prepared in meetings. That's what's going on in his life. Did you, I bet you didn't know that. And I said, no, I, I didn't know that. Uh, said, well, my first thought was, I didn't know that. It's not my fault. My second thought immediately afterwards was, you know what? It never even occurred to me there could be a good reason for this guy's behavior. And that is my fault. That's something I can do something about. I can't, when I see somebody behaving in a strangely irrational way, I can say things like, maybe the guy's been drinking? Maybe he's having trouble in his life? So I don't drink. So sometimes I encounter people who are drunk and I can't tell they're drunk. I just think, well, this person's behaving really strange. And people have told me, oh yeah, don't you know? You know, like he... The guy's obviously been drinking, James. I'm like, it's not obvious to me. I don't, I don't, I don't go to bars. I don't know anything about that lifestyle. I never went to college. I'm a teetotaler. <laughs> so, so I can't tell. And I've learned to tell. I've learned that, oh, okay. I've been, I've been at conferences and since then, and I've encountered people who are arguing with me in a strangely obsessive way. And I've learned to go, oh, wait a minute. Maybe it's possible. We are sitting in a lounge. It's possible they've had too much to drink. And I shouldn't, I shouldn't worry. I shouldn't overreact to what's, what's, what's being said. So I've learned that over time. But you see, now I'm 56 years old. Now I've made so many mistakes that I have this massive machine learning uh, mistake database that I rely on uh, that causes me to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, right before I'm about to step into a trap, I can I can sense these traps now, whereas I couldn't when I was 25. So in my long-winded way, I will summarize how this relates to, to uh, uh, relationships with developers. Young tester. Developers have a lot of pressures on them. Developers are worried that they might not be smart enough, that they might not be good enough. They might be very sensitive about that. And here you come in, young tester, and you're criticizing, you're picking at them. You're exposing them for what they are. Realize that this is a emotionally challenging situation for the poor developer. Okay, and just hold that in your heart and have a little sympathy and empathy for the, the challenge it is to be a developer. And if, you, if they can see that you have some empathy for them, they will, they will soften toward you, generally speaking. Not all of them all the time. Also, I can tell you how to deal with arrogant people because I am often called arrogant myself. I know I know the secret kryptonite that allows people to work with me. And I think it works with all other, most other arrogant people as well. Uh, which is, what is the vitamin that an arrogant person craves? You need to know what that is. And the vitamin, the drug that they crave is respect. 
If you offer to someone who is behaving arrogant toward you a, any kind of little nibble of respect, you will notice that they go, ah, you see the value of my work. You see that I'm good at this. Ah, yes, finally someone gets me. And then the next thing that happens is, with most people is, they turn around and they say, I just noticed that you're smarter than I thought you were. <laughs> so even someone who's a young tester can soften a an old, bitter, arrogant developer um, and, and uh, in such a way that this could turn into a better relationship, but you do have to have patience and you sometimes have to offer somebody respect who hasn't really earned it in your mind yet. You have to find something about that their work that you can genuinely acknowledge and appreciate is good about their work. Find something. And, and basically, you know what? There's a book about this that I read years ago that it says it better than I, I'm saying it. And it's called How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's a great book. I read the original, like, 1937 edition, which is fun because it's so politically incorrect. You know, it's full of statements like, I was going to punch him in the nose. But then I said, no, I'll try to get him on my side first. And they took all that violence out of the modern version of how to win friends and influence people. It's all politically correct now. Uh, <laughs> But I like the I like the red-blooded, uh, uh, manly version of uh, of how to win friends and influence people. So I, I recommend reading the 1937 edition. You'll get a kick out of it. <laughs> um, but it was just what I needed to 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 hear because when I was young, I would want to fight everybody, and I I fought. I the reason why I'm a high school dropout. I was getting into fights. I was violent. Uh, not with like knives, you know, it would be wrestling, it would be fists, but uh, I was, uh, I was angry and I would fight everybody. I got, I got into a fight with a, a physical battle with a teacher at one point that if it happened today, it would go on YouTube, but we didn't have YouTube in 1981. So, <laughs> so it never got onto YouTube. Uh but yeah, I mean, I would just like get into lots of physical fights. And so then I, I became a young adult, just constantly ready to fight people metaphorically. Uh, so I needed, to, I needed that message that how to win friends and influence people uh, gave me, uh, which is you can fight, but there's an alternative. <laughs> you could try that first. Maybe if that doesn't work, you can go to do the fighting. And that, and that was my first step at trying to be a kinder person and a more patient person. And so you need that stuff if you are going to relate as a tester, because as a tester, you're not a powerful person. As soon as you decide you're going to be a tester, well, you're now a stagehand. You're not the star of the show. So you want to be the star of the show, you got to be a developer. Developers run everything, if that's what you want. That's why I started as a developer. I stopped being a developer because I don't want that pressure on my back. I don't want to be the star of that particular show. So I have development skills, but I'm very happy not to be a production developer anymore. I'd much, much rather be a tester. I use my coding skills to help me test. And... Uh, there. That's my long-winded answer to your question. James, this was a great conversation. I think we touched on a lot of things that aren't technical, which, you know, a lot of people think that you just need technical skills to be in these roles, but you really, I loved what you said about, you know, the relationship with the developer, how, how to soften one of them, like based on your experiences. I think that's going to go a long way, especially if a young tester is yeah. listening to the episode. You um, don't need technical I mean, you need to develop technical skills over time, but you can be so useful with very little technical skill. You can be really useful to the team. You can help the rest of the team work better, even without a lot of technical skill yourself. 
This is one of the key things you must understand is it's, is it's not about you and your own heroic abilities. I mean, if you have heroic abilities, great. Then make it about you and, and you'll, you'll, you'll make a lot of money and, and people will want to hire you because you have an amazing ability to code. Just look at Twitter and Elon Musk right now. He just wants hero coders working for him. Someone will hire you if you're a hero coder. Uh, but what I'm saying is, is if you're not that kind of person, you might think, well, I'm worthless. But what you need to understand is that even if you're not the smartest person in the room, even if you're not the best at mathematics or coding or whatever, think about this. Imagine that you are working with someone who is the best coder. They're a fantastic coder. They're an amazing mathematician. Except they're depressed. But when they're working with you, they're not depressed. They're content with their life. They're happy. They're energetic. Because they like working with you. You have just unleashed the power of this incredibly talented person just because you're in the room with them at the time. So it's just something to think about. You might not be the best at anything, you might be good enough at some things, but it might be that you have an ability to unleash the talent in other people. And if you can develop that, and I think we can all develop that ability to unleash the talent in other people just by being empathetic, by being good listeners, by, by caring, by showing respect, by just being there. It's amazing how important just being with someone can be. I have certain uh, certain students and, and colleagues who are depressed, who suffer from depression. And, you know, they know that if they need to, and it just happened last night, that somebody came to me and called me and just said, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do about work. I'm burning out. I don't have a solution for them, except that, the solution may be to call a colleague and talk to them. And that just helps energy to unwind and, and to move more productively. Just the act of talking to someone who accepts you. Right. I think that so, it goes such a long think way. About that. How I know you're always willing and able to, uh, or willing, I don't know if you're always able, but to respond and help people out if they have questions. How can uh, somebody get a get a hold of you? I know LinkedIn is you're active on there. Um, I'm active on LinkedIn. That's a, it's a good contact me. Contacting me on LinkedIn is a good idea. Except I hate their chat system, their messaging system. It works so poorly. So I I suggest pretty quickly that people. Go move to Telegram. Telegram is a really good way to communicate with me. Uh, I'm also, I have a RST Slack forum, except we limit that to people who've taken some RST class. Once in a while, we let people in if they're really interested, if they haven't taken the classes. So I'm on that Slack forum. I'm on Telegram. There's something called the Test Chat uh, channel on Telegram that I monitor it's mostly Indians, but I like the spirit of it. It's a well-moderated forum run by a guy named uh, uh, Brijesh and, uh, and a, a few other people who help him uh, moderate that forum. And that's called the Test Chat channel. Um, but yeah, uh, LinkedIn's good. Of course, the email works. Uh, but I like... Uh, I like the uh, online uh, uh, chatting, so um, Telegram is is probably the best way. And then I use Zoom. So if we want to meet and talk, then I'll uh, I have a Zoom room, and uh, and people come into my Zoom room and talk to me, and and that's good. It energizes me. I I, I enjoy it. My wife has got me to promise that I will not schedule any new meetings with anyone for the next four weeks because she wants me to finish my writing. So I'm not allowed to, to have any new meetings for a little while. Uh, but I, I love, 
uh, I love talking with with uh, with testers and anyone. It helps me. It helps me develop training materials. So I'm always open to uh, helping people. You're you're right that I'm not always able to because of timing, but I'm uh, very undisciplined and. Uh, I procrastinate a lot, and my favorite way to procrastinate is by having meetings like this, frankly. 